Okay, well, welcome back um, to this uh, post-coffee break, pre-lunch uh, panel on Brexit and devolution. My name is Tony Travers from the London School of Economics. Uh, it's great to be involved yet again in the excellent UK and the Changing Europe programme. And like, I'm sure that everybody else has thanked the remarkable work that goes into this. This session uh, lasts for an hour and a quarter, and it's on Brexit and devolution. And we have four wonderful speakers, uh, contributors. Um, they are uh, Lord Paul Bew uh, from the House of Lords, with a distinguished uh, career uh, before, many, many years before, and indeed ongoing. Um, Professor Nicola McEwen uh, from the University of Edinburgh is part of the UK and the Changing Europe team. Professor Laura McAllister from Cardiff University uh, and uh, Philip Rycroft, former permanent uh, secretary and head of the UK government and former head of the UK government group at the cabinet office. Now, um, as we were discussing just before we began, uh, we've had a sort of common sense uh, division of labour here. Uh, broadly, those who come from Belfast, uh, Edinburgh and Cardiff are going to talk about Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales respectively. <coughs> Philip, I think, is going to talk about intergovernmental inter relations um, beyond uh, Brexit, or during and after, or forever Brexit. Uh, and um, I want just to say a few words from the chair and uh, bring in England. England is a part of the United Kingdom as well. Um, I think it's fair to say that Brexit has had a number of impacts on UK politics, and one of those is, to some extent, to sideline the impetus of devolution, or at least to pause the impetus that had been uh, going on for some years now, 20-odd years, hitherto. Uh, I think it's caused a certain degree of aggravation in the governments of Scotland and Wales, aggravation to put it mildly, and of course all of this has taken place at a time that the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly, or certainly since January 17, 2017, uh, Northern Ireland Assembly and Government have been suspended, creating a further challenge for the process, reinforced, of course, by the fact that, A, the Northern Ireland border is a key issue in the Brexit negotiations, and B, the Democratic Unionist Party are an element in the government's capacity to or not to get legislation through and other things through Parliament. I think, separately from all of that, with the departure of George Osborne as Chancellor, certainly in England, the entire impetus for devolution has uh, been reduced. Uh, I think beyond that again, what's intriguing to me about Brexit is that it has radically emphasised, and it's told us lots about the Constitution, one of the things it's told us about the Constitution is that the UK really can be a unitary state. It is a unitary state, but the whole process of handling Brexit has reinforced that idea, and that's for the simple reason that the negotiations are in the hands of the United Kingdom government and go on behind closed doors. That's the way negotiations work. It's inevitable. So it's had this intriguing, many intriguing effects of telling us something about the Constitution or more about the Constitution. Against that backdrop, it's hard to see, I think, Brexit as uh, a once and for all call for additional centralisation in Westminster and Whitehall. One of many things one could read backwards out from the Brexit vote doesn't seem to me like a massive... A vote of enthusiasm for centralising power down in SW1 and leaving it all there. So um, there's a challenge there, and I think separately a challenge for the union. 
It wasn't intended to create a challenge for the union, but there's no doubt that the dynamics of handling and delivering Brexit have created and will continue to create uh, a challenge for the union of uh, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Also for the functioning of the UK government. So, uh, just uh, in a sense to conclude my short introduction, um, clearly there will eventually be more to life than Brexit. <laughs> and yet, for the time being, we know this, it inhibits all other policy advance. And the whole range of messages came out of the Brexit vote, and thus far, almost only one of them, that is leaving the EU, has had any attention. So, what next for Brexit in the United Kingdom? And with that in mind, I'm going to ask each of my um, uh, speakers, and in the order that they're printed here, to speak for however many minutes you were told. Not too many, I hope. Um, so, first, Lord Paul Bew. Should I go up here? Feel free. Yeah. I'm going to be unashamedly crude this morning because I've only got five minutes. Uh, and I'm well aware that there are subtleties, even when talking about a small part of the world like Northern Ireland, I'm going to crash over. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware there are subtleties across the United Kingdom. I'm currently chair of the Intra-UK Allocations Review, which is going on in DEFRA. And I'm very well aware that there's an important agricultural aspect to this problem, which uh, I, I am not going to talk about. I'm going to just go right to what I consider to be the heart of the matter for an audience like this. Um, and the first thing I want to say is we are in the grip of a narrative which is governed by people's views, whether or not they were for Brexit or against. And I happen to be a, a Remain voter, but I've tried to detach myself from that narrative. And that narrative is... Yabu, you see it's leading to the collapse of the United Kingdom. Those who dislike Brexit seize on every indicator. There are numerous, numerous, very weakly sourced newspaper articles about Northern Ireland. Election results are ignored in favour of iffy polls and so on. And so let me say the first thing is this, or indeed some polls reflect an intense English nationalism. Now, let me just say one thing about English nationalism. Suppose, as I believe was going to happen, that the Celtic parts of the UK, by a small majority, kept us inside the UK, inside the EU. Do you actually believe the English would be currently engaging a rearguard action against the 52-48 result that went the other way, in which the English clearly had overwhelmingly voted uh, um, for Brexit. I don't believe there would, there would have had effects on our politics, I'm sure, but I do not believe we'd have seen the intensity of the sentiment either in Scotland or among Northern Irish nationalists to the fact that somehow this is a cheat. Uh, I don't think we would have seen that. The, the referee would have blown the whistle and that would, have, that would have been largely it as far as the English were concerned. And that's partly explained by the one thing in English nationalism. Some polls show the English saying, we don't really care if the Scots go because they're annoyed. We don't really care what happens in Ireland. It's a reaction to the tone of the public debate. The reality is everybody knows the project of Brexit would be rendered particularly absurd if as a consequence you start to lose parts of the United Kingdom. It would inherently make it ludicrous. And uh, I'd simply make that point. And I do think this is actually grasped by the vast majority of members of parliament. So that's the first thing I want to say about it. Some of these polls where English say, let the Northern Irish go and whatever, uh, because they're irritating. It's a reflection of the intense irritation there is generally about the debate between us and the EU and the intense feeling that we're being dissed on a daily basis, which would actually be 
not an inaccurate assessment of what's going on, and also an intense dislike of the role that the Irish government is playing in lieu of the fact that, for example, at the time of the bailout, uh, the United Kingdom behaved considerably more generously towards Ireland than the rest of the European Union uh, um, at, at that particular time. So there's a feeling that friends who should have been standing by at the time of the Irish are not standing by us. But let me just say, on the larger polls, for example, in Northern Ireland, the larger turnout polls, uh, um, what's, uh, the ones over 60% the general election, look how well the DUP did. Look how well the, how high the vote, the unionist vote was uh, in that election. There's probably an absolute majority in Northern Ireland for something like the Brady Amendment. It's a reasonable deduction from people who voted for the... I don't say there's an absolute majority for no deal because I don't think there is. But I, and there was clearly a majority for a main, which included myself. But and, and just always keep that general election result in mind. The European election recently saw a big surge in the centre grounds, all true, brilliant result for the Alliance Party, but you're talking of a turnout of just over 40%. The general election was well over 60 so I think it is well, just, to, just in terms of when you're being told that a border poll is imminent, uh, that Protestants have changed their mind about United Ireland, our survey at Queen's University, our Northern Ireland Life and Sound survey, shows a doubling of Protestant support for United Ireland. And that is from one and a half to three percent. Uh, I, I mean, you know, just be realistic about this. And uh, there still is a Protestant stroke unionist electoral majority in Northern Ireland. So remember all those things. There is a change in Catholic attitudes, no question about this. Uh, if you look at the Catholic community, and particularly middle class, respectable Catholic attitudes, if you look at the Catholic community in the period up to before Brexit, there's a tendency for the nationalist or green vote to decline. And the Catholic community is growing in size somewhat, not that radically, but growing in size of the vote on the vote for Sinn Féin DUP to decline. Brexit has interrupted that. No, no question about that at all. Although it's not turning out to be now quite the card for Sinn Féin, either in northern or southern politics, that it looked like being about two years ago, and not quite as electorally effective. But there is no question that there is a problem. And uh, just to conclude these <coughs> remarks by saying... Um, that is why it is desirable that, that we av avoid the consequence of an odia Brexit. Of course, an odia Brexit may be very short-lived, and it's always worth remembering it's probably more likely to be short-lived than otherwise uh, when people talk about its desired consequences. But nonetheless, uh, the argument that it does affect and would be particularly difficult with respect to Ireland is, I think, substantially true. This is not to defend the role of the Irish government during this, which is not the least until last week, not telling them anything like the truth to the Irish people about what the consequences would be for Ireland of a no-deal Brexit. They are now starting to tell, to some degree, the truth to the Irish people on, on, on this question, and indeed not really discussing it honestly with the European Union, to the public dissatisfaction of Chancellor Merkel, uh, and that's not a matter of private but public statements on her part. So it's not to defend, but it is just simply a fact. And therefore, it is extremely, and this concludes these remarks by saying, it is extremely important that we look at the ways to sort this out beforehand. And I just want to draw your attention to something that the UK government has done. It has actually changed its position from the, as this, as this, pro, uh, as this debate has developed, from saying on day one at the time of withdrawal agreement that the withdrawal agreement reinforced and fitted like a glove to the Good Friday Agreement. It has become to become aware that it doesn't, and it takes functions away from the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and it has now entered a new and different phase. And for example, on the 12th of March, the Attorney General 
explicitly stood behind the statement of the Brexit Secretary to the effect that were the withdrawal agreement clashes with the Good Friday Agreement, then the British government considers, because of its loyalty to the prior agreement, Pacta Sunt Savanda, it has a right to disapply those provisions. It's in that space, in part, where you can see a compromise developing which allows an emendation of what people perceive to be the current terms of the backstop in a way that might actually get a parliamentary majority more quickly than people realise. Thank you very much. And as I go for contributions back to back, then we'll have a bit of discussion, then I'll open up to the floor. Uh, so next, uh, Nicola. Okay, I'll just Thank you very much uh, for the invitation to come. Um, I want to talk mainly about Scotland, um, but just a, a word or two just about devolution in general uh, in, in the first instance. Um, for me, Brexit has at least the potential to have a profound effect on devolution across the UK, both directly and indirectly. Directly, uh, because of the impact on the repatriation of EU competences, um, some of which uh, at least fall within devolved competence, and also uh, the impact upon um, structural innovation funding and the fate of that funding stream, indirectly uh, because of the larger effects on the economy, on the export potential for key sectors, on freedom of movement, access to labour markets, and all of those things uh, that will affect the devolved responsibilities uh, of uh, the, the institutions uh, across uh, the devolved territories. But despite that, the devolved governments have been largely marginalised uh, from the process of Brexit negotiations. A number of reasons for that. Um, we already talked about the constitutional allocation of powers, um, meaning that um, foreign affairs, including EU relations, uh, trade relations, all of that is uh, reserved to the UK Parliament under all of the devolution settlements. Perhaps their relative size also makes it difficult to have them involved in a big way uh, in negotiations. And also um, the style of the, the current Prime Minister uh, perhaps is part of the explanation too, since some Whitehall departments were also marginalised uh, from the process. Um, but procedurally, uh, there was uh, an attempt and there was early promise uh, through uh, a new forum, a joint ministerial committee, EU negotiations. I won't say too much about that because I think Philip will probably talk about it. Um, but that new forum had raised expectations uh, that there would be a meaningful role for the devolved governments in, um, and I think this is a direct quote from the terms of reference, to seek to agree a common approach to Brexit across the UK between the devolved governments and the UK government. But in the event, um, the devolved governments had uh, little or no influence over the form uh, that Brexit may take, at least from this vantage point, um, and would argue themselves that they weren't really consulted in any meaningful way over their own positions and how they might fit. Internally, they have had more opportunity for influence over the domestic process of Brexit, and in particular, over the, the effect on devolution of the EU withdrawal uh, legislation, which in the first instance had included uh, pretty much a blanket constraint uh, on the competence of the devolved legislatures to modify retained EU law. Um, but under pressure from 
the devolved governments working collaboratively to get in a way that is uh, unprecedented so far in devolution. Um, and backed by the legislatures across the UK, uh, that constraint was loosened. Um, loosened enough for the Welsh Government and the National Assembly for Wales to give consent to legislation, but not enough uh, for the Scottish Government or the Scottish Parliament to consent to that legislation. And I'll pause there because I want to go through a little bit the sequence of events because I think it's quite important. February 2018, the Scottish Parliament introduced its own alternative withdrawal legislation and continuity legislation, essentially. That was passed three weeks later. It was an emergency bill. April 2018, the UK government refers both the Scottish Bill and the Welsh Bill to the Supreme Court uh, to test for its legality, uh, whether or not it was within or beyond competence. Um, in May 2018, the Scottish Parliament withholds consent for the EU withdrawal bill. In June 2018, the bill is passed anyway. So essentially, for the first time, uh, the UK Parliament ignores the withholding of consent for a bill that impacts upon devolved competence. That bill itself, the EU withdrawal bill, made itself a protected statute. So therefore, when the Supreme Court gave its ruling in December of last year, it had ruled that at the time that the Scottish continuity legislation was passed by Parliament, it was largely, with one exception, it was largely within its competence to pass the legislation. But in the meantime, the protected status of the EU Withdrawal Act meant that much of it was beyond the competence of the Parliament. Now, I'll go through that timeline because, in a sense, um, it has contributed to undermining and destabilising one of the fundamental principles of devolution, and that's uh, the convention that... Uh, the UK Parliament will not normally legislate in devolved areas or alter devolved competence without the express consent of the devolved institutions, otherwise known as the Sewell uh, Convention. It has also fed into a political narrative uh, that suggests that there is now a new democratic deficit uh, within the UK political system. Now, I might remind you that the last time that argument about there being a democratic deficit within the UK political system was, I think, for me, the most powerful mobilising force uh, that led to the establishment of the Scottish Parliament in the first place. So that brings me to my final point, uh, and that's uh, an issue about the issue of independence. Um, I'm often struck when um, I come down uh, for day trips and a few days here and there and talk about talk to people in, what, what postcode are we, SW1A, SW1, yeah. um, that there seems to be a, a degree of false confidence, perhaps, or complacency, perhaps, about the future of the Union um, and Scotland's place in it, um, bolstered, perhaps, by the 2017 general election, where the SNP lost 21 seats and the Scottish Conservatives uh, had something of a bounce back, best results since 1983. Also, with the knowledge that uh, it's for the UK Parliament to determine whether it grants the legal authority uh, to the Scottish Parliament to hold an independence referendum on the same basis as it held one in 2014 through the provision of what's known as a Section 30 order. But I think 
The first of those is something of a misreading of the 2017 general election to begin with, but also rather overlooks the changes and developments that have taken place since then. Second, saying that you won't allow an independence referendum to happen does not make the issue go away. Final point I wanted to make is that levels of support for independence in Scotland are at something of an historic high. And we've seen a bit of a shift in the last four polls that we've had this year, which are the only polls that we've had in 2019, to suggest that both support for independence is a little bit higher than it has been sitting at for a number of years, um, a little bit higher than it was in 2014. Uh, but below the surface of that, we also see a bit of a shift in that there is now much more of a closer correlation between those who favour independence and those who favour remain uh, than has been the case uh, until relatively recently and was the case in 2014. So, is the union under threat uh, from Brexit? Um, imminently, maybe not quite yet, but I would have to say my conclusion would be yes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jeff. I mean, I agree with Nicola's opening remarks in terms of what the Brexit issue has done for relationships with devolution. Um, hindsight is a great thing, but I, I gave a lecture in 2015, so a year before the referendum at the Hay Festival, um, and I said in that lecture that I thought unionism would ahead of nationalism. Um, I think it turns out to be quite, um, quite relevant in the current context for all the reasons that Nicola's given there. Um, let me say a little bit about Wales and pick up on a few different angles to, to what we've heard so far. Um, it, you know, it's overused to say we're living in apocalyptic times, you know, but, but let's think about what, why we've got to where we've got to. And it seems to me that one of the obvious reasons is that some elements of the loosely called UK state, but I think probably English state is a better description. Um, some elements have moved very dramatically over the past 20 to 40 years, notably developments within the European Union itself, devolution and so on. Other elements, probably mostly the ones closest to Whitehall and Westminster, have scarcely budged at all. So what we have is a kind of misfit in in uh, modernization and movement. Some stays the same, some alters very, very little at all. And as a result, we feel like everything, but nothing has changed in terms of territorial governance um, in the United Kingdom. And when you look back at what's happened, Nicola gave a lovely little summary there of the withdrawal bill and relationships and intergovernmental relations and so on. But there's not much point looking back over the last three years unless we have some certainty that attitudes amongst government and officials will change in terms of relationships across the United Kingdom. And I'm afraid I feel quite um, negative and pessimistic um, that that is likely to prove the case, especially with what lies ahead, because we know we have a, a likely prime minister who's, who will lead a party that uh, the membership at least would be quite comfortable with um, Scotland sailing off into the, uh, into the future and a potential border pole in Ireland. And make no mistake, there are, much, much less mature, but there are murmurings of a very different attitude to greater autonomy in Wales at the moment. 
um, one of the most recent opinion polls shown, showed a doubling of support for independence. Now, that's a still a small figure. You know, I'm not making any claims beyond that, but I think it shows just how precarious some of these issues actually are. And I'm afraid I fear that as a result of all this, we're seeing a process of constitutional remodelling in the traditional British stroke English way, ad hoc um, and strategic, um, centralised, all of these areas which have caused some of the difficulties that we, um, that we know have been the case. I would contend that's down to two very simple things, and, and you, you'll all be aware of the, these yourselves. The over-dominance of UK state machinery in terms of how governments relate to each other and how parliaments relate to each other, because this isn't just about intergovernmental relations, despite the fact that I think those are pretty poorly um, codified and operated. It's also about interparliamentary relations and how, and how imbalanced those are too. There were two really important speeches, I think, from a Welsh angle over the past few months. Uh, one just down the road there where our First Minister, Mark Drakeford, gave a speech to the Institute for Government, and one that we hosted in Cardiff as part of the Wales Governance Centre, where the Brexit Minister for Wales, um, the Council Gen General, Jeremy Miles, gave a speech um, about the future of Wales's relations with Europe and with the UK post-Brexit. And if you look at the language of those speeches, they tell you quite a lot. Um, the First Minister talked about his frustration with the grace and favour form of devolution that the UK government operates. Um, the fact that attitudes were not about cooperation and parity of esteem and mutual respect, that they were about giving. Uh, he quoted a, a lovely line from one minister who said, but we've given you some of that, what more do you want? And as the First Minister pointed out, devolution isn't about giving, actually. And the term devolution probably needs um, revising in that context. Um, it, it's about balance of parliaments and balance and shared cooperation between governments. Um, meanwhile, the uh, Brexit Minister, Jeremy Miles, talked about his interpretation of a lack of purposeful engagement from Whitehall towards the... Uh, national governments in Scotland and Wales. And even more damning, I guess, was his understanding that this reflected the constitutional instincts of the UK government. Now, I think mentality is, in, is as important as machinery when it comes down to relationships. And if that is the mentality of the UK government, then I think that will push the nations further away from agreement and further away from uh, cooperation um, than, than ever before. Nicky Morgan talked this morning about sovereignty and the values of people who felt that uh, leaving the European Union was, was more about reclaiming sovereignty from the, the EU. Well, I think we should listen to that, but I think we should also listen to um, remodifications or recalibrations of what sovereignty means within the UK now. Um, if we do leave the, the European Union, this isn't just about reclaiming sovereignty for the United Kingdom government here in London. That's a 17th century concept that has to be recalibrated to reflect the kind of sovereignties that now exist with democratically elected parliaments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, of course, when it is, when it is functioning. Um, and then finally, just to, to give you a little bit of a flavour of what else is going on in, in, in Wales... Um, we have a new First Minister, relatively new, eight months in. We have new party leaders in both Plaid Cymru and the Conservatives. We had European elections a matter of weeks um, away where the, the Leave vote was very neatly swept up by um, the, the Brexit party in 19 of the 22 local authorities. But where, for the first time in nearly 100 years, Plaid Cymru beat Labour um, to second place. 
And that will tell you something else, not just about the Remain credentials of the Nationalist Party in Wales, but also about the willingness now, I think, of uh, the Welsh population to vote for another party beyond the Labour Party, which, as you probably know, has won every election in Wales um, since 1918. Um, and just a, li a little bit on the um, role of the Welsh Government. Um, there was a significant post-election change by the Labour Government in Wales uh, to make it much more unequivocally remain and to campaign for a second referendum. Now, that was a significant policy change, uh, but the First Minister declared that to be very clearly linked to the prospect of having a new Conservative Prime Minister who would be committed to a harder form of Brexit or, indeed, no Brexit um, whatsoever. You'll also know, lots of you in, in the room, that the previous First Minister took it upon himself to be both a good unionist and a good European, if ever those two things could work uh, in the context of the Brexit referendum. But he, he was instrumental, Karen Jones, in pushing forward a proposal or some proposals for reform in the machinery of state post-Brexit, calls for a vastly improved intergovernmental relations um, uh, better, more concrete uh, progress on a UK Council of Ministers, who knows whether that will ever happen, and a better system for dispute resolution. In both of those speeches that the FM and the Brexit Minister gave recently, they described progress on those as being, and I quote, deeply disappointing. Finally, I think there's been some momentum around proposed uh, changes to the territorial offices of the Wales office. I can't speak for Scotland. Nicola will have her own uh, views on that. But I think this is a case as well of a dislocation um, in terms of modernisation and progress. You've seen devolution develop at a rapid pace over the last 20 years, whereas I think the Wales office particularly is still locked into a model of um, relationships that is much more akin to the 1970s and 1980s than it is to 2020 almost. Again, from the First Minister, these offices are now counterproductive to the constitutional well-being of the UK. I think that gives us some important uh, food for thought. And sorry, if I can have an, a final finally, because this is something very close to my heart. There was, there was a conversation in the end of the panel this morning about the, uh, the capacity to scrutinise what lies ahead if we leave uh, Brexit and what will happen next. Bear in mind that the National Assembly for Wales is probably one of the most underpowered institutions anywhere in the world. I recently chaired an expert panel for the presiding officer at which we've recommended a 50% increase in the membership. And only, I know even with that, that would push the membership to 90. But if you have any doubts about this, please read our report where we show just how seriously underpowered the Assembly is with its current capacity. With what lies ahead if we do uh, leave later this year, the capacity of our 40-odd backbenchers, yes, 40-odd backbenchers, to scrutinise everything um, will, I think, make a mo mockery of devolution in Wales and will further frustrate the Welsh population. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so, uh, follow that, as I say. I first time in... Uh, 30 years that I can sit on a platform like this and have my own opinion. Um, but the fair challenge there, um, uh, particularly from Nicola and Laura, on uh, what the UK government has and hasn't done over the last two, three years in terms of handling the relationships with the devolved uh, governments uh, in the context of Brexit uh, and what that might portend uh, for what comes next. So what I'll do is I'll do, if you like, my version of how this has unfolded. 
but then look into the future. What are the options, choices, particularly for the UK government um, in a situation which I think everybody would accept is far from optimal at the moment? I mean, my starting point, looking at intergovernmental relations and the design of those, um, was under stress anyway, pre-Brexit. Um, designed for a very different era, designed uh, when there were Labour-led governments in power uh, in Whitehall and in Scotland and Wales. Um, really in abeyance for quite a lot of that era. Uh, picked up some momentum when uh, the SNP formed a minority of governments in Scotland in 2007. Um, but has never been the sort of forum that you see in other particularly federal states. Some of it worked, like the JMCE, um, uh, which looks after European issues as a forum to work out what the UK's negotiating position should be uh, for fisheries councils and so on. Actually, quite a lot of the actors in that space would say that did have uh, some utility and some effect. Um, but it, the, the design of intergovernmental relations, the whole JMC machinery, for all the virtues of being flexible and ad hoc, uh, was not well designed either to deal with the more extensive devolution uh, that we've had since, certainly since uh, Scotland Act 16 and Wales Act 17, nor to deal with governments that have fundamentally different political approaches. Uh, and all of that, of course, has been hugely complicated uh, by Brexit. If you look at the scale of issues that uh, the governments are now dealing with, these are far bigger, if I may say so, than sorting out what the UK position should be on the Haddock Quota uh, December Fish Council. Um, so you've got working out what the negotiating objective should be, uh, both for phase one, more particularly for phase two. Uh, you've got actually the involvement in the negotiations themselves. What is the role of the devolved governments? Um, you've got preparing for exit in whatever form it comes, particularly a no-deal exit. And then you've got the whole question that Nicola's alluded to uh, of the returning powers. How are they sorted out? Uh, where the concept of an internal market was not incorporated, a UK internal market was not incorporated into devolution settlements, because when the devolution settlements were put in place, people rightly assumed, or at the time, that the UK would stay in the EU. You didn't need to worry about that. This is a very, very major change. So huge pressure on uh, the machinery of intergovernmental relations. The response to that, Nick has already referred to the creation of the James C. Uh, European negotiations. In a sense, the, the decision was made um, to use the existing machinery uh, to, to handle Brexit, uh, and with terms of reference that were pretty far-reaching. Yeah? Uh, you cannot fault the terms of reference. Seek to agree a UK approach to the, uh, to the negotiations, and provide oversight of the negotiations. There was, this was signed off. Um, I won't tell you the complete story of how we got to that point, but nevertheless, those, those terms of reference were signed off by all parties, including uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Has it worked? So you've heard the gloomy side of it, and I'll come back to that in a minute. On the positive side, there has been a huge amount of interaction at the official level on a day-to-day -day basis. I would accept having been involved in that, it got off to a bit of a bumpy start, particularly around the sharing of information. But if you look at the trajectory of that um, over the last uh, uh, year or so, possibly a bit longer, on the withdrawal agreement bill, on no deal planning, on the handling of the programme of statutory instruments, even the ministers within the devolved governments have accepted that that, that, le that discourse, if you like, at official level, uh, has improved a lot. Why? 
actually because it's essential for all actors in that space uh, to know what the others are doing, uh, because the impacts of No Deal, for example, would be UK-wide. You can't just plan this for one bit of the UK. And so beneath the surface, if you like, of all the political uh, noise, there is a lot of very good collaborative work uh, that has been done, and on the common frameworks as well. And some of that emerging into, into the public domain, you can see the fruits of that. At the political level, however, the divide is as great as it has ever been. The Scottish Government and the Welsh Government take a fundamentally different approach uh, to Brexit. It's very difficult to see um, where that joining point might have been uh, when both of those governments basically have such a fundamental different difference of view uh, to the UK Government and emblemised very significant, the first refusal uh, of an LCM, uh, but nevertheless the UK Government um, went on, for the Scottish uh, Parliament went on to pass uh, the Withdrawal Act. So relations are in the deep freeze, and I think not much prospect at the moment of them coming out. It's just worth pointing out this is all happening without the Northern Ireland political parties being engaged in the process. Um, for those of you who've watched the JMC over the years, uh, will have spotted that uh, the Northern Ireland parties been in the process complicates what happens in the JMC because you have to navigate the differences between Sinn Féin and the DUP, as well as the differences between the UK government uh, and the devolves. But for the last, uh, however long it is now, there has been no, exec uh, there's been no political presence. The Northern Ireland Civil Service does participate, but of course can't bring uh, a, a political view. So intergovernment relations struggling to bear the weight that is put on it, the machinery that we have at the moment. Uh, phase two is a lot more complicated than phase one. Uh, it goes into far more deeper, deeper territory in terms of devolved uh, uh, competence. And the common frameworks, as I've alluded to, this is not just something that gets sorted out in a week or a couple of months or a couple of years. This is forever the handling of relationships uh, which ultimately about the integrity of the UK internal market uh, will uh, uh, provide a context where well, it will require collaboration between the governments and ergo uh, provide a context for uh, flashpoints and political disagreement. So we need to sort this stuff out. Um, where are the governments at on this? The Scottish government looking at the current review of intergovernmental relations, uses, using that as a leverage to look for a rather bigger constitutional change, which is essentially to remove the not normally from the Sewell Convention, so that, in other words, the, the Sewell Convention would have statutory force um, without the UK government being able to, uh, to overrule it. The Welsh government uh, also looking for major change, the Council of Ministers' idea, and, of course, in Northern Ireland, uh, no executive um, to participate um, uh, formally in these discussions. So, in other words, the UK government is going to have to lead the charge on this. And what are the choices? And I'll finish on this sort of briefly. First choice, what I would describe as the grin and bear it scenario, um, where the UK government says, well, this is all terribly difficult. Um, it's not working brilliantly, but on a day-to-day -day basis, things are moving forward. Um, so we will talk a good game, keep things running as they are, but not make any major changes. The risk of that, of course, particularly in the Scottish context, uh, with the environment that Nicola describes, is that it further worsens relationships. We've got elections in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland in May 21, and that is a very significant political moment. 
Uh, there is an option for more thoroughgoing reform that take into Council of Ministers sort of territory, which would push you up to or possibly over what I think of as the federal line, uh, where the devolved parts of the UK um, ex uh, explicitly um, can veto uh, policy for the whole of the UK. And that's a very big uh, constitutional issue, of course, but one of the big things that, that we have to sort out if we're going to go into that territory is the English question. Where's England in? And what I'm seeing at the moment is very little debate about that, and certainly in the political context, not many people coming forward with that sort of thoroughgoing uh, constitutional reform programme. Is there a middle way? Uh, possibly. Um, the reforms that Nicola set out in the report you did on uh, intergovernmental relations last year, a lot of good thinking and all of that, doesn't push it over, if you like, the federal boundary, but does strengthen and improve the machinery, and indeed, a previous review of uh, intergovernmental relations, which was vetoed pretty much at the last minute by Sinn Féin, and then the SNP incorporated quite a lot of that thinking about ensuring that regular meetings, more transparency, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think underpinning all of that, absolutely essential to move this forward, um, that there is a visible and meaningful role for the devolved administrations in the EU and trade negotiations coming up. If they're, if this, if they're excluded from them, that will cause a lot of problems. Um, that there is a ramping up of engagement on devolved issues by Whitehall departments. Whitehall has taken a long time to learn about devolution. That needs to now uh, uh, get, get sort of uh, uh, turbocharged in the state we're in. And there needs to be more visibility, actually, of what the UK government brings to uh, the devolved parts of the UK. Um, uh, and I would like to see at some point a UK government uh, demonstrating that it has changed a significant policy because of representations from the devolved governments. That would be extraordinarily powerful. There is an agenda there that might deliver something which I think is hugely important in this context. It's the UK government demonstrating respect uh, for the devolution settlements and for the people in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, and I think if the UK government uh, continues with an agenda to sustain the union, it's got to find a way uh, to be able to visibly and manifestly demonstrate that respect. Constitutional framework, uh, not unique to this issue, but um, true of almost everything, uh, but now made very clear by Brexit, begging the question of, on the assumption we can't immediately write a written constitution to operate all of this within, what would be the alternative, what's the role for the Supreme Court, uh, and what kind of arrangements, some of which have been touched on, could strengthen the capacity for the UK's constitutional machinery to continue to function without uh, losing parts of the United Kingdom, assuming that's what it wants. Uh, second, I mean, one of the things that's you know, clear from all of this is that England, which has traditionally not asserted itself within the United Kingdom, has asserted itself. So normally the English, I think, have held back, but I mean, however accidentally, the fact that Scotland and Northern Ireland voted uh, to remain 
uh, Wales almost, uh, and England voted strongly in many places to leave, creates a sort of element of England asserting itself, however, others may disagree with that. Uh, third, uh, listening to the excellent uh, Conservative leadership uh, contest, I'm not sure also this is being discussed much. Uh, that didn't come up, but that's my uh, contribution. Um, four, related to that, we're all quite rightly assuming this government or something like it continues, <laughs> but of course things could be very different if there were a radical change of government to a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government, whose approach I suspect would be somewhat different. Um, fifth, trade deals. I mean, we're dealing with the process of leaving the European Union at the moment. As Philip's just said, all the trade deals that will be done will feed back into the UK economy in a remarkable way. Every one of them will feed back differently geographically into the UK, given the mix of the economy from place to place. And if the devolved uh, countries and uh, devolved nations and parts of England don't have a role in that, as Philip said, that would lead to, I suspect, fascinating consequences. And then last but not least, there is the issue of England as a place where very little devolved power really in England and with no role at all for parts of England that have very different interests in this, uh, both in terms of their economy and their governments. Anyway, enough for me. I don't know if any of you would like to respond either to that, the temperature summary, or to each other. Okay, accept your, accept your, your broad <coughs> summary. The one caveat is I actually think, although it's not uh, played, you're quite right, like I watch most of these debates, any formal role, it would be unfair uh, and an attribution of greater stupidity to our political elites than currently exists. And I know people think you cannot possibly attribute greater stupidity to them. They do know that these issues are real. Not quite in some of the details, some of the points I made this morning, but they do know they've got a major problem. Both, both camps are concerned about the, about the United Kingdom, uh, and it's likely to be reflected in policy quite early on. It's not played a role in the debate, but I am convinced that they do. They're not, they're not as asleep on that as we often are asleep on issues. They do know there's a toothache, uh, a, a, problem, a problem to be faced. i just say one thing, of course, I didn't talk about the Northern Ireland Assembly because it doesn't exist, and other two speakers have. And to, add that, uh, to get it back by Christmas, I think there's a reasonable chance you have to get the end of the, the results of the judge-led inquiry into the heating scandal, which played a major role in its initial collapse and will have possible effects on political leadership in Northern Ireland. And you have to get Brexit resolved. Probably you have to get it resolved with a deal. Uh, um, and, and then if, if these things are cleared out of the way, the chances are better than average. You cannot expect it. And then, of course, the fact that you have a Northern Ireland Assembly then does, as Philip says, play into how you might manage this thing in the future in a whole number of ways, gone beyond, what Philip, gone beyond the point of Philip. Uh, there is a reasonable chance, but you, it's not going to happen. The resolution of the Northern Ireland Assembly is unlikely to return in the next few weeks. With reasonable luck, it will return by Christmas. That's a specific question. I mean, you were relatively um, sanguine and optimistic about a way being found, paraphrase you, of dealing with the Northern Ireland border issue. Mm. I've heard that from time before. But I mean, intriguingly, the more that is the case, the easier it makes the Scottish government's case that independence can easily be delivered because there would no, be no need for a hard border on the Scotland-England across the 
I, 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 I've noticed that knock-on effect, and I think Scottish Conservative MPs are particularly uh, uh, well aware of it. If I could just say one thing, though, about the impact of, uh, of Brexit, which does in some ways destabilise the United Kingdom, certainly so. There is something which lies behind this and is to be seen in the increase in Scottish Conservative support, Unionist support in the general elections in Northern Ireland, which is this. It's very simple. We are discovering how hellishly difficult it is to extract ourselves from a relationship that, you know, 40 years, you've forgotten, but of a few decades old. If, we did, if Scotland wants to extract itself from a relationship going back to 1707, Northern Ireland, the one that goes back to 1801, believe me, that is going to be hellishly more difficult with and everybody, every citizen has it. There's the word pension. Who pays my pension is in the back of everyone's mind. That's one reason why I think that the gay people want to believe, people who hate Brexit want to believe that everything is going to be terrible, you're going to be eating dreadful chicken, and so on and so forth, ah, da, 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 da. I understand why they don't like it. I voted against it. But actually, it's narrative. It's, it's a kind of being in the grip of a narrative without reflecting on these fundamental facts. Interestingly, in the last week or so, the EU have reached this trade deal with Mercosur, Mercosur trade deal. This means that if we stay in, the threat to the chlorinated chicken, which has transfixed so many people, um, is replaced by a far more serious public health check, which is Latin American beef, which is produced under circumstances and conditions which are, make the conditions of the American chicken look positively um, idyllic. Uh, so, but nobody talks about it because it's not part of the narrative. Mercosur, if we stay in, has now cancelled out the chlorinated chicken. People are in the grip of the narrative. This thing is so bad, so stupid. The, end, the effects that make it make it go on are endless, endless, endless. Actually, people were going to have to contemplate a particular point. Do they really want to leave the Union of the United Kingdom, seeing how difficult it's been to leave the, the European Union? Uh, and in such event, who pays my pension? And by the way, all other such cases, Canada is an example, and Quebec suggests that in the end, the pension requirement wins out over various forms of cultural sentiment. Okay. Responses from me. I mean, I, I don't want to sound kind of innocently naive here, but it seems to me that um, if we continue to pursue um, a, a new form of constitutional remodeling without allowing some proper parity between the nations and proper contributions from civic society as well, then I think we're going to probably make the same mistakes all over again, but this time in a more critical environment. Because as you said, Tony, you know, the, 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 the elephant in the room is England. There's, there, there's a very immature debate uh, at this point in time about what England might want from a constitutional remodeling. You also made the point that it's still a hugely centralized country. Well, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, if you look at the way that devolution's been doled out in England, it's been done in a completely different way to the way it was uh, uh, executed in Scotland and Wales. In Man Manchester somehow managed to acquire powers that we needed two referendums on in, in, in Wales. So, you know, th th these are very different. And I think it shows a different attitude to how you're, you're going to manage the whole English question. I mentioned our previous First Minister, and whilst I think this is, this is not going to happen, I think the concept of a UK-wide constitutional convention needs at least some consideration. That doesn't mean you necessarily move to a, a written constitution, by the way. It could be having the debate about what the relationships between the governments and the parliaments of these aisles are. Uh, 
are. And even in the debate, you might offset a further drive for Scottish independence, if that's your intention. I think the other point to mention is we've got to change the terminology here. I mean, devolved administrations, you know, come on, you know, we're, 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 over tw we're 20 years into devolution. These are democratically elected democratically elected parliaments with effective governments. You know, they're no different to the UK government. And I think we've got to stop this term as if they're somehow inferior in the uh, lexicon of political language. Um, the other point is, you mentioned the Conservative leadership uh, mm. campaign and in all its glory. I mean, I, I, I witnessed the Hustings in Cardiff observing from afar. And, and Boris Johnson made a really interesting comment there, which I think was his only contribution to any debate about intergovernmental or interparliamentary relations, which seemed to be along the line of, if the Welsh Government doesn't pursue its, um, uh, its spend through its borrowing capacity on the M4 relief road, and you'll know that the Government has decided not to pursue that policy, then we will make sure that we find a way of persuading them to do it. <coughs> I mean, if that's your starting point for new relationships, and I think, you know, we, we can't hold our breath that things are going to be any better under the next Prime Minister. Nicola, I mean, the idea, I mean, we've almost nothing edged on this panel to the idea of the, the needing to be some sort of veto player role for Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland in the government of the United Kingdom. I think it's, it's obviously very difficult to imagine a, a, veto, a formal veto role, not least because of the continued significance of parliamentary sovereignty, uh, also because the UK is not a federation, but it always strikes me... Well, there are some solutions that have been put forward and the, the Welsh Government's proposal around a voting system uh, within um, a, a council of ministers would uh, be one option there. Uh, that proposal was for a majority to include the UK Government and at least one of the devolved governments. Now, I think that that would be as likely to destabilise <laughs> the future of the union as, as anything else um, because you would still be creating a scenario in which a devolved government, let's say the Scottish government, was being asked to um, accept something against the will of the Scottish Parliament. And I think we have to accept that if that's the road that you go down, um, then there are political consequences with that. Um, we know that there is QMB within uh, the EU Council, um, but yet much of the voting takes place, uh, sorry, much of the decision-making takes place by consensus between 28 member states. I just don't think that it's beyond the capacity of four administrations to talk it out. <laughs> to, to come to an agreement. And I think it's also equally important that one government, a devolved government, let's say, can't prevent the others from doing what they would want to do on their own, um, but finding ways to coordinate to allow autonomous action where it's 
um, the desired outcome but do that doesn't constrain the others. I don't think that's beyond our imagination to, to come up with something uh, like that. But can I just come back on some of the issues around um, uh, independence? I mean, back in 2014, the independence referendum took place against the backdrop of satisfaction with the political system. Um, and all of the political science literature tells us that um, independence mobilization or constitutional mobilization takes place when there's a sense of grievance, when there's some sort of catalyst or dissatisfaction. That wasn't the case in 2014, but it would be the case now if we were uh, to have that sort of debate again. And that's partly about Brexit itself, but it's also, and this is perhaps more difficult, it's about the direction of travel of the UK as, as a country, as a state, as a political system. And I absolutely accept that some of the issues that were raised around pensions, that was well rehearsed anyway, around the border, around extraction from a, a 300 odd year old union, would be enormously complex and in many ways because of Brexit, much more complex than would have been the case in 2014. But the balance of risks is not the same. The UK suddenly does not appear to be necessarily the safe option here, the risk-free option. So there has been a bit of a shift in the, the, the balance of risks on both sides. Final thing I wanted to say was, uh, I think Philip said that intergovernmental relations has been very difficult because of the fundamentally different approaches to Brexit. And I agree with that. What I would also add, though, is that I think what has been revealed in the last few years around the, the relationships between the different governments is a fundamentally different understanding of devolution. And that's, I think, a bigger challenge. Devolution is understood in a different way from Scotland, Wales, and to some extent Northern Ireland than is the case um, for successive UK governments, actually, and that's a bigger problem. Imagined futures. I think the risk is, if any people care about this union, um, if the choice seems to be between what we have now, which is gritty, messy, argumentative, and is not going to get easier anytime soon, or independence. You are the risk is that those who hitherto have been, if you like, with their hearts in Scotland for independence, but with their heads and their wallets uh, for staying with the UK, you see that drift. And all the polling from the 14 referendum shows how finely balanced that was. The famous poll if you're 500 quid better off, which way would you go? I think it demonstrated to me that the hearts of the folk in the middle, this isn't the entirety of the population, the folk in the middle. Um, the hearts were tending towards independence, but the heads say, partly because we worked the pension thing pretty well um, up to 2014, uh, is stick with the UK. It seems to me that there is an enormous challenge which says you've got to try and create another, if you like, imagined future which sits somewhere between those two things. Uh, and it is incredibly difficult in the UK context to do that, ultimately because of the asymmetry of the relationships between uh, the four parts of the UK. 
um, which is why the English question looms so large. If, Engl if, the, if Brexit was partly a cry of disenfranchisement by a lot of folk in England, it seems to me that is part of the solution uh, to addressing the, the wider concerns about the future of the UK Union as a whole. Um, but it seems to me that, that the, 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 the political class needs to get into that territory, needs to do so with imagination and needs to do so really very quickly. Okay, very good. Right, I'm going to take um, <coughs> one, two, three questions. So, yeah, for you, Mike. Is there a microphone? I mean, Jeff, Thank you. Anna Bailey, I'm a political scientist. So I, I find it really remarkable that there's not more or not really any discussion of the current paralysis of the Northern Ireland governing institutions, given that this is such a key moment when the citizens of Northern Ireland really need to have some kind of democratic representation to give them voice, because at the end of the day, something or other is going to be imposed on them by someone. Um, so I'd like to ask, well, Lord Bew in particular, um, where do we go from here in terms of clearly the current political settlement in Northern Ireland isn't working. Where, where do you think we go from here with it? I find it odd that... Um, so much has been said about centralization because surely Brexit involves a huge, huge accretion of power to the devolved bodies, not the whole of agriculture and fisheries, but a good proportion of those functions. And one of the reasons of Scottish nationalists in the 1970s, they were the only party in Scotland in favor of a no vote then because they said it means transferring fisheries away from Scotland into Europe and presumably independence within the EU would mean the same. So it seems to me Brexit involves a huge amount of decentralization. I think the only area where it could challenge the Scottish Parliament would be on its provision of free university places for Scottish residents, but not English, Welsh or Northern Ireland residents. That may be subject to judicial review. But I think the, the problem with devolution now is not the one of over-centralization, over but the obverse of devolving and forgetting the mistake we made with Northern Ireland under Stormont. And it seems to me that um, some of the problems facing Scotland are not local problems, but national problems. For example, the free university tuition has been paid for by cutting 150,000 places in further education. Now, if, as I think, there's a very serious skills problem in Scotland, that standards of literacy and numeracy are low, then that's a national UK problem, not just a Scottish problem, and can't be forgotten by any British government concerned with educational standards. And this does raise the constitutional question that Tony raised, not perhaps a constitution, but some charter of what social and economic rights are essential to preserve the union, which is not just a constitutional union, but a social and economic union, and must be the responsibility of Westminster, and what can legitimately be devolved. And that's not a question we've yet faced. And I think Brexit should make us uh, come to a decision about a, a principal decision about what powers can be legitimately devolved and what remain the concern of the United Kingdom. And even a federal state like America or, or Germany 
what the land governments do or the state governments do, the federal government cannot be indifferent to. Um, and, and this seems to be a problem we haven't yet faced. Thank you very much. A slightly different tact. Um, an agreement with the EU, or, or for that matter any other country, will require a common set of rules. Failure to comply with those rules could lead to the part suspension of an agreement with that country. I'm thinking what kind of governance structure do we need in place across the four nations, and indeed the wider British family as well, thinking of the overseas territories and uh, crown appendices, and thinking of models like EFTA, where they have uh, the EFTA surveillance authority, uh, that monitors compliance within those states. What kind of institutional framework do the panel believe that we need in place post-exit? Okay, so sort of trade arrangements in the UK potentially just your political one. Okay, right. Uh, don't let me need to answer every question. Um, sure. Um, the, the, um, the, um, sure. Go to the last, last one first, if that's okay. Um, I mean, the, within the devolution settlements, there is a legal obligation to implement international agreements, but I think you raise a really important point. In fact, I think Jill raised it this morning as well about the, the kind of apparatus and infrastructure that may be required, depending on the kind of Brexit that, that we have. Um, and I think it's a, it's a live issue, and it's one that causes some concern, um, I think, within the devolved governments, but perhaps in particular within the devolved legislatures, because it does raise issues around <coughs> excuse me, democratic accountability. Uh, for decision making and for governance. Um, on, on Vernon's point, um, yes, and, you know, on one level, of course, I, I, I agree with you in terms of the additional um, competences that could flow, um, depending on, again on what kind of Brexit uh, that we have. And it was the discourse that the UK government had uh, tried to use um, around. Uh, I think the Secretary of State talked about a powers bonanza and additional powers that would be coming. I think this goes back to the point I was making about different conceptions of what devolution is, and I hesitate to sort of have that conversation with, with, with you. Um, but from the perspective of the devolved institutions, they already had those powers. They weren't new powers. They already had the powers. So anything that was a constraint on those um, was seen to be an additional constraint, and there is also the issue of the balance of power uh, that, that Brexit entails. Um, I think that the phrase that you used about devolving and forgetting uh, is an interesting one. It's one that the Prime Minister has been using uh, lately too, and um, it's interesting. I think where Theresa May to continue in that role, there was a signalling of a kind of competitive nation-building uh, type of thing at play, similar to what we've seen in various periods in Canada. Um, I have no idea of the direction of travel for a successor, uh, but we will have to wait and see. Just, just to add to that, I mean, I think um, the issue really was centralisation versus potential for decentralisation of, of powers. I mean, this was very well rehearsed, wasn't it, in all yeah. of the conversations that initially the Welsh Government and the Scottish Government were very much on the same page, but, you know, the, the issue of their political colours was bound to separate them at, at some point, as it proved to be the case. But, but I think there are a couple of issues here. It's about the... Um, uh, duration of powers being held in a kind of holding bay at Westminster, um, which has uh, upset people and confused people and, and made people feel that's unfair and um, unpredictable. 
Um, clearly, the Welsh Government was prepared to make some compromises over that. But interestingly, again, the, the Brexit Minister made it very clearly that nothing has been nailed down, as he put it. And I think the FM um, referred to that in the Institute for Government. The problem is, you know, if this is just going to be dribbled out back, you know, when, when some of the powers were already in the hands of the um, devolved parliaments, then you can see why um, the, the argument for this being a potentially a trajectory of decentralisation hasn't gained an enormous amount of, of traction. The other point about the future relationships between the nations and the European Union, I mean, it's not quite your question, but it, I think it's relevant in that this has been quite a live debate in Wales, um, partly because we have a new European minister who is a former MEP herself and understands some of the potential for bilaterals and so on. But I think, you know, again, this is a potential recipe for a very piecemeal approach to future governance and future relationships with the EU. Now, some people would argue that's not an altogether bad thing, but if Wales pursues its own bilaterals and its own um, offices in Brussels and elsewhere, Scotland already has these and, and will do the same, and then we have England without anything uh, uh, integral to England alone, Northern Ireland currently not being able to operate, then you can see how, what, a, what an ad hoc territory we're, we're then pursuing in that future as well, which gives some cause for concern. Hope the fish respect the boundaries in the North Sea. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just unfortunate they don't know when they're coming up for a meeting like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm an English fish and I must be caught by an English boat. So they, um, you, you have that set of problems. I think there are some sort of strands that sort of hold this together. I think Vernon's point about, if you like, what are the common expectations and rights across the UK? I mean, I'm a resident of Scotland. Um, I've been for 30 years, so <clears throat> I benefited from nine years of free undergraduate education for my two boys. Thank you very much, English taxpayers, because that uh, uh, is one of the benefits that comes with the, uh, uh, with the Barnet formula. And fortunately, the younger one has decided that he's going to do another year of education in an English university. Um, so Dad is going to have to dip his hand in his pocket to pay for that. I am paying more in income tax than um, any of you in this room, probably about Nicola, but uh, it will be a long time before that erodes the advantage that I've had from... Uh, the free tuition uh, for my sons in Scotland. But it does raise a very interesting question. How do you, and it also comes at a point about what sort of authority do you have to manage the relations between the different parts of the UK? So when we're looking at questions of the UK internal market, who is deciding that the Scottish government and the Welsh government or the Northern Ireland executive um, has broken the UK state aid rules? Uh, and the risk at the moment, of course, is the UK government is seen to be both prosecution and judge in those circumstances, whether it's the CMA um, or other uh, UK institutions. What authority do they have um, uh, over the devolved parts of the UK? And where is the trust um, that you see in normal circumstances in other federal or quasi-federal authorities? That trust, of course, does break down, as it did in Canada <coughs> under the Stephen Harper regime, but there is a, the solidity of those relationships means you can get over those blips. It, it, in my mind, all of this comes back uh, to the question of the asymmetry of our arrangements, the stubbornness of English folk, somebody born in Yorkshire, I'm sort of not quite as stubborn as others, to accept a regional dispensation in England. Uh, and it's that territory that we need to get into uh, to get to a point where people uh, uh, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland can see equity in the treatment of those issues, whether it's about rights across the UK or about the handling of the, of the performance, uh, the, of the respect of their legal obligations 
by the devolved governments. Um, and it's that territory that there is just very, very little debate about at the moment, um, which I have to say worries me somewhat. Oh, I'll just take the question of the old man's assembly and to reiterate there just isn't one. Let me just say, I mean, I agree with uh, Lord Murphy, who said from the Labour front bench, and he was the most important minister on the ground during the Good Friday Agreement, there were two problems with the negotiation withdrawal agreement. One was not so much, not, not enough attention being paid to the principles of the Good Friday Agreement intended to subvert them. And secondly, there had been no Northern Ireland Assembly to have any kind of input into that. I do think, having just said that, the UK government did try and imagine reasonably what the views of the people of Northern Ireland were on these questions. Arguably too much, because the, uh, uh, um, the strategy on the part of the EU was as as Tony Connolly's book showed, Barnier went to the, you know, on the Irish, we will use the Good Friday Agreement against them. Uh, um, and they did let it be used against them. But that was either an impulse that you can understand of a certain type of decency and searching for a compromise, in the end, disastrously perhaps. But nonetheless, it certainly cost Theresa May a premiership, no question, uh, in, that, in that brutal sense of you a duty of care to the Prime Minister. Uh, brutally, no, it's cost of the premiership, it's fundamental to the reasons why she fell. But they did imagine, they did try, the idea that people thought, oh well, the only thing that matters is that the DUP has 10 votes here in Westminster, and that's important to the Prime Minister. Um, we don't care about the fact that the majority of people in Northern Ireland vote to remain. That is just not the case in terms of the temper of our negotiation um, with, the, with the European Union. And, and, and I, at some level, right, I do, I do think in the end they were not subtle or strong enough. But if you, there was no disposition to behave as if the 10 votes were all that mattered. And indeed, if there had been a disposition to behave like that, she'd probably still be the Prime Minister. Okay, I say one uh, quick. Thank you very much, um, Keith Best, former Welsh Conservative M MP. I mean, I, I, it's coming really back to a point that you've spent a lot of your life dealing with, Tony, uh, uh, and that is the whole question of the relationship between Westminster and other parts of the, the UK. I mean, it is arguable, I think, now that um, amongst old Europe, we are one of the most, if not the most, dirigiste, centralised administrations. And uh, notwithstanding the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly, uh, that very much goes back to the whole financial settlement. I'm one of those sad people still alive who read the whole of the Layfield report uh, back in 1975, I think. It, it, it was all 500 pages. Uh, and it, that proposed certain things, I mean, some of which would still be regarded as impracticable, probably like a local income tax. But I just wondered what the panel feel about the capacity of the whole Brexit debate being a catalyst for a real stimulation about trying to readjust that financial settlement, whether it's the Barnet formula or whether it's the local government settlement uh, between Westminster and local authority in, in, in England, to actually try to get a situation where when people vote in local elections, they really are voting for people who will have a material effect on how money is spent in that area, rather than merely trying to go off to Westminster and get more of it. Um, my question's about the implications of no deal on the development of common frameworks. Um, is the UK government likely to use the freezing power um, in the EU Withdrawal Act? And if it does, what would likely be the reaction from the devolved governments? Okay, I think that's time to questions. Um, 
I mean, I think that's, that's so fundamental, really. And one of the weaknesses of Welsh devolution up until this point has been, uh, up until last year, has been an absence of real um, fiscal and financial independence, even within the very limited block grant. But, you know, the, the changes now as a result of the Wales Act 2017 mean that, you know, that at least 13% of the um, expenditure in Wales will come from um, income tax changes and other fiscal responsibilities. I think that that's pretty fundamental. I'm not sure how that will play out, though, in a, a Brexit scenario, because, again, we have different dynamics relating to Barnet, you know, from Scotland and Wales in terms of how each of the, the governments see that. And I suspect this might be one of those other issues that, however strategically important, just probably won't see the light of day in terms of a proper review. Um, on the, the financial settlement... I think the Scotland Act 16 and Wales Act 17 did, uh, to some extent, complete the business of, that should have been done back in 98 in terms of giving serious money-raising responsibilities to those two governments. And in, interestingly, in the May 16 election in Scotland, you began to see the impact of that on the political discourse in Scotland. Uh, and I think that was, was a long time coming, but now you've got a situation where Scotland certainly, in terms of its fiscal responsibilities, is way advanced over many other provinces and lender and all the rest of it in, in federal systems. Um, you could argue that whether that's a good thing or a bad thing at the end of the day. What it, what it means is the central government, if you like, the UK government, has very little capacity to spend money in Scotland, certainly on devolved issues. And so the visibility of the central government is less than what some people uh, might desire. I think the, the broader import of your question um, you know, I've been involved in devolution uh, since its inception. I'm a big fan of devolution. I think it is the right thing to do, and I th personally think England needs a lot more of it. There is no reason why uh, you know, Manchester and its environs can't run its own education system. And you know, I did schools policy in Scotland for a long time for a population of five million people. That felt about the right sort of, uh, of level. But to do that effectively, you've got to have proper funding powers, and that money has to be raised in a way that people who are voting for those authorities see some relationship between the money that's raised and how that money is ex expended. So again, this is part of the debate, and it comes back to England again. What is the future for it? Just a question on no deal and common frameworks. Um, of course there'll be a point of stress there, bound to be. Um, but I have to say, if we're in a no deal context, it's probably not going to be the thing that's top of mind, certainly in the first a few weeks or so, because there'll be so much else going on. Um, but the common frameworks question, and I think the point was made in the earlier session, what it does is it increases dramatically the scope of shared powers. A devolution settlement that was pretty binary, Scotland Act 16 Scotland, and Wales Act 17 increased the scope of shared powers over both tax and, in the case of Scotland, over welfare, Brexit brings in agriculture, transport, fisheries, environment, some justice issues and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. The governments are going to have to find a way, one way or the other, of cooperating and collaborating about this stuff. Okay. Um, I mean, on common frameworks, I think I, I agree with the points that Philip was making earlier. It's one area where there has been a lot of cooperation despite the bigger political differences, um, and partly I think that's because it's been dealt with by officials. At some point, ministers will have to come in the room, and, and that's when it, it, it starts to get, get more difficult. Um, on the issue of territorial finance, um, I, th I think the, the difficulty I would see 
of, of launching a kind of whole scaled view of, of, of the system. It's partly to do with the asymmetries that are even more uh, um, stark than, than they were before. Um, but because of the, the issue that we've been talking about all along and the lack of trust, um, and I think um, at least the current administration in Scotland would be very distrusting of that sort of whole scale review. And I think you've got to address that trust issue before you can get the kind of cooperation, whether it's from that or a constitutional convention or whatever, uh, whatever whole UK thing that you wanted to do. Final point, just on the 2016 um, taxpayers, absolutely the 2016 devolution settlement for Scotland did uh, result in a big increase in the fiscal autonomy of the Scottish Parliament, but it also has a very big reliance on one tax, and that one tax and the tax take from income tax, it will be um, vulnerable to developments that are beyond the control of the Scottish Government, the Scottish Parliament, or indeed of any government. Um, but I think it does, yes, make the Parliament more powerful, but also it makes it more exposed. Uh, and that's one of the difficulties. Okay, well, thank you uh, all of the panel for their contributions and some parts of England we've got two already, quite a big uh, challenge, though um, the, um, and another issue that Nicholas hinted at this just now, the Treasury would be very, very, they must already have had to be lent on hard, and, uh, very unenthusiastic about tax competition of any kind. Um, uh, the idea of the tax competition among several English nine English regions and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, I suspect wouldn't leave them very uh, comfortable. Um, I think the further question on England is, given it has to some degree asserted itself, I would argue, through the Brexit referendum, looks the question whether it would ever do with it, whether it would doing so more in the future. In some parts of England, they get very little public policy attention. So the East Midlands, I'm not from the East Midlands, these buildings have the lowest level of public spending in the, of any regional nation in the United Kingdom. Has no big cities, not even a biggish city, not big enough to get attention. So it gets very little public policy attention compared with, say, Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland, or not, to name four other places. So I think there is an issue there, which, if it's not addressed, is just going to go on and causing difficulty. Um, I think we've had a fascinating discussion about the need for within UK relations relating to government and trade and a form of diplomacy. We kind of, you know, a sort of e sort of with a version of the EU sort of, uh, dare I say it, within the United Kingdom in future. Um, and last but not least, <coughs> I can see that unless and until those within the United Kingdom government can find a way of dealing with the conflict they face as being simultaneously the government of the United Kingdom and the government of England. It's going to be very hard fully to resolve many of the issues we're discussing. Anyway, 
That's why this is such a good subject. <laughs> and we'll be here all afternoon discussing it more.